Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Um, and hello, everybody. Thanks to the BBA for uh, hosting this webinar today on life sciences enforcement. Uh, we have a great panel today. Uh, my name is David Schumacher. Uh, I'm a partner with the law firm Hooper, Lundy, and Bookman. We are a health law firm, uh, and my practice is healthcare fraud enforcement and healthcare litigation. Um, I'd like everyone to introduce themselves, because we really have a terrific panel today to talk about criminal and civil enforcement actions. We've got representatives from the government um, and from private practice. Why don't we start with uh, Bill Brady from the U.S. Attorney's Office? Maybe, Bill, could you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, uh, thanks. Thanks, Dave. Appreciate that. Uh, my name is Bill Brady. I'm an assistant U.S. attorney uh, at the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Boston um, in our healthcare fraud unit. Uh, I've been, actually been part of the healthcare fraud unit um, for the uh, five plus years I've been here with the office, and um, I've kind of been handling a variety of different matters, both in healthcare and outside of healthcare, uh, ranging from guns, drugs, uh, white-collar crime, and, of course, healthcare fraud. So uh, very happy to be part of this panel today, and uh, thanks, Dave, and, and thanks to the BBA for the invite. Great. Why don't we move next to um, Abe George, someone who's probably familiar to a number of uh, our participants today um, from the Affirmative Civil Enforcement Unit in Boston. Abe, could you tell us about yourself? Yeah, thank you. Uh, hopefully familiar in a good way, but we'll see. <laughs> um, I'm Abe George. I'm, I've been at the U.S. Attorney's Office since 2013. Um, I'm currently the ACE chief, and uh, in ACE, we do a number of enforcement actions brought in the government, including, of course, healthcare frauds are our main diet of work, uh, but also defense contracting fraud, NIH grant fraud, Section 8 housing fraud, any kind of fraud uh, we could handle. And then um, I'm actually on Monday, starting Monday, I'll be the civil chief, where I hope to continue to do ACE work, uh, but we'll see how, how much that's realistic. Congratulations on that, Abe. Has, um, has an ACE uh, replacement chief been named? Not, not yet. There, there will be that'll be done. I think shortly. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Um, and finally, on on the defense side, representing uh, industry's point of view, perhaps uh, we have Andrew O'Connor from Ropes and Gray. Andrew, tell us about yourself. Thanks, David. I'm I'm Andrew O'Connor. I'm a partner here at Ropes and Gray, where I co-lead the healthcare and life sciences industry group and our False Claims Act practice. And I uh, have had the vacation to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with a a Abe and others in the office and, and look forward to a good discussion here today. Excellent. All right. So look, we're gonna um we're gonna talk about criminal healthcare fraud enforcement with Bill, with affirmative civil enforcement, false claims act enforcement with Abe. Um, Andrew's gonna talk about some of the things that he's been seeing, including recent DOJ guidance. Um, and then we are gonna have a lightning round of a variety of hot topics. Um, but um, as Noel mentioned at the beginning, please do um, submit any questions that you have in the chat. We'll keep an eye out for them and, and try to answer them as we go along, because you, you have a really good opportunity to speak with uh, some really sharp folks uh, who are on the front lines of healthcare fraud enforcement today. Um, so I thought, um, Bill, I thought we'd start with you on, on the criminal side of the Boston 
um, healthcare fraud unit, of course, always at the forefront of healthcare fraud enforcement around the country. Um, I'm wondering if first, maybe you can tell us um, a little bit about sort of the personnel um, in your department, um, how many folks are there and who are you working with? And then tell us what the um, healthcare fraud unit's been up to over the last year when it comes to uh, life sciences. Uh, sure. Uh, thanks, Dave. Uh, so uh, within our office, you know, we have a we have a unit, the healthcare fraud unit, and it is devoted to uh, investigating, prosecuting uh, criminal healthcare fraud. Um, and and we sort of we take that to uh, we do that pretty broadly, right? So uh, there's you know everything garden variety fraud that somehow touches the twenty plus percent of our economy around here that's healthcare. Um, within the unit, uh, I think there are eight or nine uh, AUSAs like myself, um, and um, I folks who have dealt with us uh, will often see, you know, we, we often kind of work cases as a team, um, you know, don't, you know, you'll often kind of have two of us and, and often a colleague from, a, um, from AIDS unit uh, when, when we end up dealing with us. Um, and, and I'd say that I, the unit has been busy. I mean, busy with uh, new investigations, uh, ongoing investigations, and I'd say, especially in the last year, uh, we've been quite busy as a unit uh, with trials. Um, and, and I think part of that is maybe a function of, um, of COVID uh, and, and that stretch when trials either weren't happening or they weren't happening at, at nearly the clip that they were happening before COVID. And so you know, we're kind of working through, you've been working through a backlog of, of trials. Um, and, and just to give a sense of, of what those cases, those trials have been about, um, these have been criminal trials against individuals uh, involved in home health schemes. Uh, we had a trial involving a, a psychiatrist who was billing for services that were rendered. Uh, had a trial um, involving a physical therapist, also, again, uh, services that were billed to federal health payers, uh, federal health benefit plans uh, that simply weren't rendered as well. Uh, also, had a trial involving a doctor uh, who is an orthopedist uh, who is engaged in upcoding, so overbilling for visits um, at his medical practice. Um, and I guess what you, can, you know, we can take away from that is that you know, when we when we think about cases, when we charge cases, um, you know, we are always going to be focused on accountability for individuals. And if that means going to trial, then you know, we're prepared to do that uh, to hold people accountable for violations of the criminal law. Yeah, um, and we've all sort of kept an eye on on those recent trials, which have been really interesting, Bill. Um, I'm wondering, you know, you so you've been there now for I think you said around five years in the in the healthcare fraud unit. Um, I'm wondering um, if there's anything that you can tell the group about, um, sort of what how things have evolved in the in the caseload that the unit's seeing. What what types of cases are are you seeing now as opposed to what you were seeing a few years ago? Are there any new or recent trends that you can identify? And um, and also ask you if you can speak up a little bit. You're coming through just a little bit scratchy. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry about that. Um, I, I'll, I'll try to keep my voice up. Let me know if it's a problem. That's great. Um, but, but, but really, you know, Dave, I, I think you know the trends. I, you know, in some ways, I think there's there's been continuity 
um, in terms of the type of cases and the priorities. I think for the unit, and I know as somebody who was who was in the unit before, um, you know, one of our priorities is always going to be anything that touches on patients and patient safety, or you know, any anything that uh, that poses that risk. Um, and and I think if you look at the cases that you know where we're investigating that have been charged, certainly during the time I've been here. Uh, that's been a top priority, and, and that's been an area where, you know, we spend a lot of our time, and I expect we're going to continue to spend our time. Um, I, I think, you know, in terms of maybe more specific areas and types of cases, um, in my time here, uh, opioids has been a, a significant area of focus. And, and again, that's kind of broadly. People who were involved, every, you know, from folks who were prescribing opioids, to the companies that were manufacturing the opioids and those who work with them. That, that's, you know, given kind of the scope and scale of the opioid crisis in this country, that, that's been a focus as well. Uh, telemedicine, telemedicine schemes, definitely kind of see that as a trend. Um, you know, there's been a lot of money going there and unfortunately a lot of opportunities for abuse and fraud. Um, and so that's when we need. I think the other thing, and again, this is something that I think has always been the case, you know, from before my time and certainly up to today, is kickbacks and kickback schemes. And I know that's going to tie into Abe and his uh, and, and the uh, civil enforcement side of things, um, because we work hand in hand with with our colleagues on the civil side to investigate kickback schemes. And that's that's always been a priority. Any any sort of corruption of the medical decision makers and the gatekeepers in our system, um, that, that's, that's definitely been a focus of ours as well. Um, Bill, when you're investigating an organization, a company, life sciences company or any other healthcare company, um, we know that the, the unit takes a close look at, um, at the compliance apparatus within the organization. Um, anything you can tell the group about sort of how you, the types of questions that you ask or what you're you're looking to see when it comes to um, the state of compliance within a company you're investigating? Yeah, so, so Dave, I mean, that, that is, um, in corporate investigations, that is definitely going to be, uh, definitely gonna be a focus of ours. And, um, you know, it's something that I think has always been the case for the unit, but especially with the current administration from the top, um, the, the culture of compliance and, and evaluating compliance and effectiveness of compliance is something that, um, you know, from Lisa Monaco and others, I, I, you know, looking back at a speech that, that the deputy AG gave at, um, at the White Collar, the ABA White Collar Conference last year, where, uh, you know, she, she emphasized an ounce of prevention uh, is worth a pound of cure. And, and I think with compliance, that's, that's definitely our view. Um, but when we find ourselves in investigations, we're looking at companies, we're looking at compliance programs. Um, you know, not just we're not impressed by the the mere existence of a compliance program. Uh, it's got to be an effective compliance program, and it's, there's got to be you know what we're looking for is a culture of compliance. Um, and and we look at this enough where um, you know I think we've got a pretty good sense of. Um, you know, what we're looking for uh, and, and where it exists and where it doesn't exist. So, you know, if we're looking at a compliance program where, uh, sure, there's, there's, you know, there's employees who are in a compliance function, but they're not at all empowered, they're not trained, they're not respected within the organization, 
and they just get rolled over by, uh, you know, say the, the salespeople or those who are engaged in conduct that we're really focused on, you know, we're going to look at that, and, and that's going to be a real concern. So I, I think compliance can really help you uh, when, we're, when you're dealing with our unit, with our office and investigation, but it can also be a real, you know, it can be a real issue for you when, you know, we get into it if it turns out that it's not a real effective program. And I'll say just one other thing about this, because um, I assume at some point we're going to be talking about whistleblowers and, and key TAM lawsuits. Um, you know, I think a common fact pattern that we see is before the case comes to our office or comes to our attention, um, you know, if there is a whistleblower involved, you know, it's often the fact pattern where that person tried to do something within the organization, tried to take their concerns to somebody, and nothing happened. You know, they were, you know, at best just brushed aside. Um, and, and so I, I think, you know, um, having a, having programs in place to be able to address these issues before before you're even dealing with criminal healthcare fraud prosecutors, um, it, it's I mean, from our perspective, it's it's well worth the investment. That's very helpful, Bill. Thank you. And that that is certainly the case. That is a very common um, key tam fact pattern. Um, there are also plenty of key tam relators who are not well-meaning compliance officers. I will just note, um, and some of them. Um, we'll file multiple key tamps in the district and, and across the country. Uh, so maybe we'll have a chance to talk about that a little bit. Um, with and, and, and Dave, I, I, I was going to chime in on the, on the compliance program. I, I think most folks recognize the value of a, of a good compliance program and, and certainly want to make sure that people who do have legitimate concerns have a place to voice them. And we, we've all heard from the department over the years how important the, the having a compliance program is in terms of the principles of, of prosecution and things like that. I, I guess I, I'm, I'm curious about how, how you all look at situations where there is a reasonably well-resourced compliance program um, and and good professional people in the job, but but no no program is perfect, right? There's always there's always going to be problems out there, and I, I think one of the things that that we've seen occasionally is that is that a a substandard compliance program is a is a minus, but having a a, a good compliance program doesn't necessarily get you ahead of where you might otherwise be. At least that's the perception from from some on the defense side. Uh, I'm curious if you all have any reaction to that. Well, you know, let me, let me you know, Abe, definitely want to, you know, get your thoughts on this. But, um, but, I, but I think, Andrew, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come down to, you know, obviously it's going to come down to the facts. And, and by the time that Abe and I are, are kind of looking at these situations, I mean, we're, we're kind of looking backwards on, you know, if, if, sort of if we're involved in it, we're kind of looking back on a failure, right? Or at least, you know, it's going to seem like a, a system that didn't, you know, wasn't, didn't catch the issue that we're concerned about. Um, so I think that's always going to be an element of it. Um, and, and I take your point that, um, uh, you know, um, the question I'm sure for, for your clients is going to be, well, what, you know, what are we really going to get out of this? Um, but but I, I think, you know, one question that in every corporate investigation that we do is going to be, well, kind of who, who within this organization was involved and how high up did it go and when
when it got to the attention of those higher up the, in the chain, you know, what do they do about it? You know, and how do they view it? That that's why I think you know that that's I think where the compliance and the culture of compliance uh, is really sort of critical. And something that I, I can tell you we take really seriously in these conversations, and we're we're trying to think about it and sort of think about um, you know who, who's really you know who's accountable for what happened here. So I think. On the civil side, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to pick up. On the civil side, we would certainly credit a company that had um, a robust, effective compliance program, if if that's if that's what the facts bear out. But I think your 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 comment, Andrew, does point out that that's definitely theoretically possible that that there are people who are rogue actors at the company on the corporate level who were not a, who the, a good compliance program was not able to catch. It's just a difficult situation factually. For, for you to present to us, right? If the compliance program was so effective and robust, why didn't it catch this problem? And I think that that goes to what Bill's saying about like what the facts are, right? If it's one rogue actor, I just, I mean, I don't see us generally speaking doing some huge case um, where that's the case, but most of the cases that I can think of are not just one rogue person. You know, that's not really what we're looking at doing because you can just terminate that person. And if the compliance program is effective, and if the culture of compliance is effective, that person have probably has been terminated. You know, most of the cases where I'm seeing this come up, it's either there are people who are well-meaning in compliance, but they're disempowered or they're not empowered enough to the extent those are different. Um, or there is no compliance. And I so many cases we see also are like some of the most egregious cases that we see are really early stage companies that don't understand understand that this is probably the most highly regulated area of industry, possibly in the whole world. And they have business backgrounds and the things that they're doing may make sense strictly from an economic perspective, but are not in compliance with the many healthcare laws that I'm sure some of you on the on the Zoom don't love. Yeah, and, and um, in HHS OIG's recent compliance guidance that they just put out a few weeks ago, they spent a whole chapter on new entrants to the healthcare industry, which is uh, a lot of companies like you're um, identifying a, uh, tech yeah. companies, private equity-backed companies that, you know, not your traditional life science companies and hospitals that may not have a robust compliance apparatus, but everyone's got to pay attention once you're playing in healthcare. Right. Um, so Abe, you jumped in. Um, tell us a little bit about um, the ACE unit. Tell us a little bit about the personnel, how many folks work there, who some of the personalities are, and 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 what you've been seeing lately. You've yeah. been there for some time now. Sure. So we are 10 lawyers, including me. Um, we have chief, a deputy, and then eight other lawyers. Um, a lot of us have been here a long time. I, like I said, I've been in this unit the whole time I've been in the office for 10 years. Our deputy, Brian Lamacchi, I think is nine years, same thing. Um, we have some other people who all a lot of them have been here more than five years. So we we have a, a lot of uh, you know a long sort of experience and track record in the unit. We do healthcare fraud, I'd put it roughly 80 to higher percent of the work that we do. But like I said, we also do defense contracting fraud, grant fraud, section eight fraud, um, any anything that involves fraud on a government program. But by far, number one is healthcare. And by far within healthcare, the number one type of case um, are kickback cases. And over time, I think those have gotten more complex, right? Um, the, the cash in an envelope or under the table uh, is 
much, much rarer. I'm struggling to think of one off the top of my head in the last couple of years. Um, so th those cases are difficult. Um, so a, a couple of things that are sort of stand out to me about our unit and how we operate. Number one, I think Bill alluded to is the structure of how we do things. Unlike a lot of districts, we're cross-designated um, in almost every case. Um, so that means that when we open a healthcare investigation, especially if it's a kickback investigation, which is again, what the majority of our healthcare work is, we're gonna be designated both civilly and criminally. And, and there are cases where it's us and Bill or someone from Bill's unit there are also cases where it's just us, but we are still wearing both hats. So we can do the criminal case on our own if need be. The, the vast majority of the work that we take in are, are key TAMs because we have to address those. Um, and a lot of key TAMs don't result in any criminal charges. So we still are doing much more civil work than criminal, but our investigations are both. And so that can be a bit confusing to people, unlike the two of you who, who don't have a lot of experience in our in our district. I think at this point, you know, certainly you guys, and I think most defense lawyers who do this work in Boston are aware of that and how it works. And I know there's a lot of complexity to that from the defense side that maybe we'll talk about. Well, it does it does create some um, interesting challenges for Andrew and I and, and other defense attorneys. Um, you know, if if the case starts with a civil investigative demand um, and it's a request for documents or interrogatories, maybe deposition, then you know it's an FCA case, um, and there's sort of a standard uh, rhythm and path to those cases. Um, it's a little, it can be a little different if it's a, when it's a joint case in your in Boston District, which these kickback cases often are, um, and the subpoena is not a, a civil investigative demand, but rather a HIPAA subpoena that allows criminal and civil to both review the information. Um, you know, that's fine. You got to respond to the subpoena one way or the other. But then when the request comes in for a voluntary interview, um, uh, if it's there's an individual client that you're representing, um, it can be more challenging um, to, to figure all that out if it's a joint investigation than it's a civil, than if it's just a civil investigation, because the prospect of criminal, the prospect of prison um, is on the table. And so the decision tree is a little bit more different. Andrew, is that something that you've ever had to yeah, Dave, I, I, yeah, you really put your finger on it. I, I think it, it, it really comes to a head when, when you have requests for, for, for interviews. And, and as, as a company, generally, your posture is you want to be cooperative uh, with the government, uh, um, and you want your employees uh, to, to talk to them in, in many cases. But if, if there's a, a, a realistic threat of, of criminal prosecution on the table, you're talking about employees who might need their own counsel, who might have very different interests now. Um, and and have to think really hard about whether it makes sense for them personally to sit down opposite a, a federal prosecutor. So I, I think it becomes very complicated in those cases. And I, I think even more generally, outside of the context of individual interviews, um, it, it it makes the decision making harder on, on on clients. There's a lot more stress when there's a, a potential criminal case in the background. And of course, there's an ethical rule that says you can't leverage the threat of of criminal. Um, you know, criminal exposure to gain advantage in a civil case. And there's a good reason for that, for that ethical rule. Um, but the mere fact that um, Abe is wearing two hats exerts some of that same, that same pressure um, j j j just by operation of the, the, the role. Not to say that anyone's doing anything contrary to the ethical rules. The point is just, is just that th there, there is a, a, a concern and a, a level of, of 
sensitivity that's that's present when you have the threat of criminal prosecution. That's just different when, from when you get a, a CID. Wondering, yeah. Abe, can you give us a sense uh, of uh, for the investigations where you're where you're cross designated, um, what percentage of them roughly end up with some type of criminal resolution? I would say definitely under ten percent, probably under five percent. So wow. it's not very many. Um, you know, and and the department policy for a long time has been that we should be doing um, joint investigations, and um, it's funny because I'm I'm not really sure why other districts don't do it. Uh, they have very um, firm walls between the civil and criminal, um, and and we don't, and we feel like we're following department policy. I'm not, you know, bad mouthing anyone from any other district, but I, we in our district have grown up, I think, doing it this way, and that's what's normal to us. Um, and and for us, as Andrew said, we can't use the civil case to advance a criminal case, and similarly, we can't use a criminal case to advance a civil case. Um, and, you know, we're very clear about keeping those lines in mind. Um, so so this is kind of the the habit that we've formed as to how to do things. So um, okay. the other two things I was going to mention just, just quickly about. Please. Think, yeah. It, um, the second thing also, I think, familiar at this point to people in the defense bar is that for about three to four years, we were requiring people to admit to the underlying facts um, in in uh, in the settlement with us of FCA or CF, CSA, whatever the usually FCA um, settlements. So um, we do that because you know it's, it's similar basically to what happens in, on the criminal side with a guilty plea. Um, although one difference is we don't require. The defendant to admit to liability they're just admitting to what the facts are and we think that um, allows the public to see what's been going on you know we, we previously found it frustrating where sometimes we're conducting you know three-year investigations we've talked to every sales rep and every uh executive in the company and, and everyone knows what happened and then the settlement agreement would come out that says you know that this basically th this doesn't mean anything in terms of what the facts are in the covered conduct you can't rely on it. So we we put this in place and now the public um you know will know what what went on. And if, if that doesn't amount, if the defendants can argue, I guess, that, that that what those facts are does not amount to a violation of the law, but at least what the facts are 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 agreed to. So and and I, and I know that's controversial and difficult. Um well can it can it can it can just um it can draw out the negotiations a little bit when you're hammering out the covered conduct, right? Yeah, it, it can do that. But at this point, um, we I, I went and sort of looked back at how many times we've done this. And I think we're over 30 times now. So we've settled over 30 different matters in the last three plus years where there are admissions to facts in pre-litigation settlements. So it's I think it's becoming rote. I think people understand that's what's required. It, it, it can be obviously a point of negotiation. Um, and and it, we, we do negotiate it to some extent, right? It's sort of the devil's in the details, but pre-litigation, absent some exceptional circumstance, which hasn't come up, and I, I'm not sure what would be, um, we require that there are admissions to the facts. Don't you think um, it's a problem, though, Abe, that, I mean, because like you said, this is something that's somewhat unique to Boston. Other districts do not require admissions. And so if you're representing a company um, and just so happens that they filed here instead of 
over the state line somewhere else, you're going to have to eat this admission rather than, you know, in the other district where you where you wouldn't. Like, shouldn't there be consistency? I mean, I think in general, the department's always striving for consistency, right? Um, but, and so, so, you know, if I were in charge of everything, I, which I'm not, <laughs> I would say that that should be the policy across the department. I think that, you know, settling with the boilerplate language in FCA settlements is the floor. And, and you know, it's been my understanding that the districts are free to set a higher bar. And we're, we're not the only ones who do this. The Southern District has done it. Um, there's a... Um, the Eastern District of Washington has also done this a fair amount. And I, and I get, honestly, I do get calls a lot from people in other districts. How do you do this? How did you start doing it? Has it been an issue? And um, so I'm, I remain hopeful that more and more, to your chagrin, Dave, more and more districts will do this. I think it's really helpful, you know, for, for, for accountability and for the public to know what, what went on. Um, Are you going to continue working ACE cases? I am, I'm going to try to. I okay. think maybe not at the level that I have them, but. Well, tell us, so you guys have had a number of um, of high profile resolutions, settlements over the last year or so. Tell us about some of the cases that you guys have been involved with and any any patterns that you've noticed. Yeah, and, that, and actually that leads to something, one other thing I was going to say, which is we are at, a, to my knowledge, a historic high watermark for litigated cases. You know, the, the pattern in ACE for, forever, as far as I've known, is um, we do investigations and usually there are resolutions or declinations, right? It's, it's, there hasn't been an FCA trial that the government's been involved in a very long time. Um, and there haven't even been litigated cases in a while. Um, but now we, we have intervened in a number of cases. There's, there's the public interventions, which include the, the, the tail end of the copay assistance fraud cases, one against Regeneron, the other against Teva. Um, we intervened in a case, a Stark case against Stewart um, that was recently. And we intervened in a kickback case against a, a hospital called Bornwood and for psychiatric partners. It's doing business as that uh, second name. Uh, we also have, I think, at least three um cases where we've intervened but the complaint has yet either yet to be filed or yet to become public so if we're if we're talking six months from now that number is going to go up unless unless they get settled in this um interregnum so there's a lot of intervention and litigation going on you know there, there have been years where there were no intervened cases um and now you know we're at like more than five right so so that that is a that's a big thing, and and I wonder, you know, it just occurred to me when Bill was talking that it, maybe it's related in some ways to how there's more trials going on uh, than there have been in HCF. I, I don't really know, honestly. I'm curious, you know, if anyone has thoughts, it'd be interesting to know um, to what to attribute this to. That there's some thought that maybe it's about the admissions, but I don't think so because I haven't had a single case in our unit where someone litigated the case after we discussed settlement and the hang up was admissions that has yet to happen. So I don't think that's it, but I, I can't rule that out. And I, I don't know if you on the defense bar have any perspective on that. Oh, did you see the question along these lines, Abe? Is that what you were? No, no, I didn't actually. There's a question along these lines that came in that said, has well, it's related. Uh, has I the see. requirement to admit facts scuttled a potential settlement and sent a case to trial yet? It, it has not, um, it, at least 
I, I can't speak to what the internal discussions were at a company knowing that this is the background. So that's the part I can't account for, right? And I, I don't know if other people have thoughts about that. But there has not been a case where we are discussing resolution and we have not been able to get there based on the admissions to the covered conduct. So I have not seen that. Now, I don't, again, that could be playing out as a backdrop, like we're not even going to enter these discussions because we're not willing to tolerate the admissions. That I don't know. Got it. All right, well, we're going to come back to you, Abe, um, yeah. in just a second, but I want to give Andrew a chance to um, discuss some of his experience. Andrew, you've been doing this for some time. I'm wondering what trends you've been noticing. Uh, what have you been wrestling with over the last year or so in the life sciences space? Sure. So for the last few years, Maine Justice has has indicated that that Medicare Advantage is going to be an area of of focus. Digital health is a priority, um, and I'll say in the last year, I, I, I've I've seen a lot of that um, happen in, in in the real world. Um, we saw a lot of speeches for the first couple of years, and and now we're seeing subpoenas um, on on those issues. So I'd say an uptick in in both of those spaces, um, and then. What's old is is new again, and in, in the form of some speaker program cases, and and Abe, I agree, we're hopefully well beyond the cash and envelopes phase. I think there was also the 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 you know the golden age of, of speaker programs. Um, I, I think since OIG put out its special fraud alert now three years ago, uh, really calling into question the educational value of speaker programs and and suggesting a number of potential limits on them. We're starting to see uh, relators and 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 DOJ pick up some of these speaker program cases that they don't have quite the same facts as the speaker program case of ten years ago, um, but but maybe uh, speaker programs that don't quite meet OIG's new expectations, and and we've seen a little bit of an uptick um, in in some of those. And along those lines, Andrew, if I could just jump in for yeah. a second, one thing that I've been seeing is not necessarily as many traditional speaker programs. From pharma where there's a, a speaker's bureau or, or an advisory board and there's speaker events. Um, but you know, we are seeing um, consulting contracts in lots of different areas. Pharma companies providing consulting contracts to maybe folks within a specialty pharmacy or you know other other um, healthcare professionals who are in a position to to influence a prescription one way or the other. Um, and you know those arrangements would be subject to the same guidance that you just referenced. Um, and so that's something that I've noticed is sort of non-traditional speaker type contracts and those carry, you know, as much risk. Have you seen anything like that? Yeah, I can think of a couple of cases that they don't involve speaker programs, but other sorts of consulting relationships. Um, and, and and some of those are outside the the, the prescriber context. Um, uh, one that touches on pharmacies, for example, even though pharmacists aren't typically prescribing um, anything. So I, I think that's I think that's right. Um, I, I, in terms of other trends, I'll tell you, uh, people are, are wrestling with the, the corporate cooperation guidance, um, on, on, a, on a few different levels. We've certainly heard the drumbeat, um, at, on this panel, other panels, every conference from DOJ, you know, cooperate, self-disclose. I, I, I think most folks in the industry are taking a wait and see approach and, and, and trying to gauge whether the, the, the cooperation credit that um, folks are getting is is really um, worth the additional risk you're taking on. I mean, these these companies all have fiduciary obligations, and and if if they're signing up for multi million dollar you know uh, settlements, 
they have to think twice about whether it makes sense to go in and walk a case in to, to, to Abe. And I think that still continues to be a, a difficult decision. Um, and um, my, my, my hope is Abe and Bill and others will settle lots of cases with with very light uh, results on, on the on the companies um, so that we have some examples to point to and say, well, this might be the benefit of, of cooperation um, and self-disclosure. But I, I think there continues to be a fair amount of skepticism um, on the part of the, the the defense side. We're waiting to see the walkaways, right? Because we, we often exactly. see, we see a number of, well, there's been a, a voluntary disclosure and there's still a, you know, $10 million resolution. I think we're waiting to see the walkaways and the true benefits of it. But I'm going to throw that back to Bill and Abe to see that there has been a good amount of guidance put out by the DOJ over the last couple of years, but some specific guidance, actually putting some metrics around the value of, um, voluntary disclosures and cooperation. What are you guys seeing? Are, are you seeing more companies or people actually, you know, walk into you um, with voluntary disclosures than you've seen in the past? I, I can, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll go first. Um, so I have made this pitch many times along with other people in our office. And I, and I think recently we have been seeing more uh, voluntary self-disclosure. And it's something that's always been important to us that if anything, it's uh, even more important um, to our current USA, Josh Levy, um, he, he really wants to focus on that. We've been beating the drum for that and how we'll treat you fairly. And I, and I know that I shared with you guys, but I think it's good for the audience to hear that, um, number one, I, I have been getting more after years of getting none. And number two, I recently had one um, that did result in a walk away. I guess the problem is I can't say who it is. I get that 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 company and lawyer, of course, are free to do so if they want to, but I guess they they don't. But I promise it's true. Um, they came in and 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 I think they did the right thing and they self-disclosed what they thought was a problem. Um, and it turned out that it appears, at least as far as we can tell, that it is not a problem. And and I let them know that. And um, there there might be some administrative aspect to it that they'll deal with with the particular agency or not. That might not even be necessary. Um, you know, I, I, I can't quite opine on that, but that was a true walk away. So I think the message from us, is, you know, writ large and in my unit specifically is we will do that for sure. If that's what's appropriate, we will absolutely do that. And we have. Um, and you just have to take my word for it that we did. Yeah. Bill, same question. And, you know, even if I, I don't know if you've had folks come in with true voluntary disclosures, um, maybe you have. Tell us about it. But if you haven't, I'm wondering if you've noticed um, any um, any difference in behavior amongst any of the entities that you've been investigating since this guidance has come out. Are companies, you know, more willing to cooperate at an earlier level? Do they seem to be taking the DOJ guidance seriously? Any observations along those lines? You know, Dave, I, I, as far as a voluntary self-disclosure on the criminal side, I, I can't, and, and part of this, as Abe pointed out, too, is, um, you know, kind of limited in terms of what we can talk about for anything that's not public. But, but I, you know, I fair to say that, um, you know, I don't think there's been, um, uh, you know, kind of a rush of companies to come in and report this criminal conduct. But I, but I do think, I, mean, I, I do think it kind of connects up to issues that have, Existed for a long time relating to cooperation, and um, I, you know, I, I can't say I, I can't say that there has been a new trend in terms of how companies are cooperating, but um, but but I think the discussion that 
I think we often, I feel I often have is, um, you know, what what does cooperation mean, and what's you know what what's the type of cooperation that um, when we're thinking about criminal resolutions and, and criminal outcomes, you know, what's the type of cooperation that, that's really going to get your credit? Um, because I, I think even even now, despite all of the guidance and statements uh, that have come out from DOJ, um, you know, we run into um, you know we run into counsel. We run into no, nobody on this, this Zoom. We run into counsel who you know they they get a subpoena and they produce documents as required by the subpoena, and and then they come to us and start talking about cooperation and getting some credit for that and. You know, I think the guidance, I think our office has always been clear that um, cooperation, the kind of cooperation that's going to earn you credit and consideration um, goes well beyond that. Um, and I think the guidance is made clear, it includes if, if there are individuals who have been involved in wrongdoing, you know, we expect that the company that's cooperating is going to help us identify that um, and, and really kind of go beyond just Looking at the subpoena and what we're asking for, and giving us, you know, exactly those categories of documents, and then sitting back to see how it plays out. Um, so I, I think, you know, I, the guidance. Um, I appreciate people read the guidance, and and it's something. I mean, cooperate. I think the reason why we we sort of um, have those expectations is because, you know, when a company does cooperate, um, it's really meaningful. Um, and we take that, as Abe said, we take that really seriously. I think the, cre the credit we give out for cooperation is such that, um, I think from our perspective, it really has to be earned. Yeah. I have noticed a bit of a change out there. I wonder what Andrew uh, Andrew's perspective is on this, whether it's due to the recent guidance or not. But I think in, I think in the old days, um, if there was a big investigation of a pharma or a device company or a hospital, on the defense side, they would sort of strap on the battle armor and batten down the hatches and, and line up joint defense agreements with former employees and maybe others involved in the situation, and take a real defensive posture. And I've had a couple of situations recently where I represent individuals or uh, participants in an investigation who are not the main defendant. And there is um there's not the same level of um of joint defense and cooperation because i think companies are are really trying to strive to um cooperate earlier gain credit identify potentially culpable folks uh, at an earlier stage so i have noticed that andrew have you noticed that either representing you know sort of the target or um uh, or someone else involved in the investigation sure sure yeah i i i have noticed that but i'll say I, I i disagree with the premise that that having a joint defense agreement is not cooperation right or is in any way um uh, an indication that a company is not fully cooperating um that that being said if you have employees that have in fact uh, engaged in wrongdoing and and the company wants to communicate that to, to DOJ it does raise questions about what whether you can in fact have a joint defense agreement with someone um but but I I would certainly you know push back on the idea that having a joint defense agreement in any sense means you're not fully cooperative but I agree with you that some companies have been a little more skittish in terms of interacting with um, individuals 
I think on the theory that DOJ expects them to throw everyone under the bus, regardless of whether they did wrong. And I, and I don't think that's necessarily the, the the case, but there is a bit of that perception out there. Yeah. You know, if I could just uh, say two things about this topic, I think, uh, I don't think it's DOJ policy that the mere fact of having a JDA means that you can't be credited cooperation. So, so um, I, I don't think you're saying the otherwise, Andrew. But um, no, oh, I, I'm I'm not. I, yeah, I, yeah. I we're in agreement there. Yeah, yeah. So I want to make clear that everybody understands that. Um, and then I also think that um, you know the point of the recent policies from DOJ are, to, especially on the criminal side, um, is to try to standardize uh, expectations that defendants can have so they can feel more comfortable coming in. And I know Andrew, you've expressed obviously there's a lot of concern about coming in when you don't know exactly what you're going to get. And so if you want, you know, the maximum amount of cooperation, especially on the criminal side, you know, follow the follow the policy. It's meant to make it clearer to you what you will get. But there is also and, and on the civil side, there's even more of this. There's also still discretion, um, you know, it, it, either within a range or on the civil side, perhaps even more. And I, so I say that to say it's never too late to be cooperative. Right. Even if you started off the case in a dug in dug in your trench position. If you come, you know, around and realize that actually what the investigation has uncovered uh, or is beginning to uncover or whatever, whatever the time period may be, um, that there's a real problem there, I would encourage you to change your tune and come in and start cooperating. Maybe you're you're not going to be eligible for, again, especially on the criminal side, for the type of cooperation you would have gotten had had the subpoena not gone out at first. Um, but you you can still benefit, and I think it's still worthwhile. Um, and and you know if there really is something there, and you're really dug in, that is not going to help you. Of course, if you believe you're actually innocent, or um, you know you, you have defenses that you want to make, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. But you know don't don't let the fact that time has passed dissuade you from coming in to be cooperative. Well, and I will I will note also that I think the office has been open to, in the right case, um, if there's been a high level of cooperation at some point to actually identify that and acknowledging that right in the settlement agreement. Um, I've had one or two of those instances, which can be really helpful to the uh, the company to swallow it, and it's a message to the to the community as well about. Uh, sort of yeah, and and there's been an effort to sort of standardize that as well by adding a recital in civil settlement agreements where that's appropriate. But, you know, even if you get a subpoena and that means you're not eligible for the maximum amount of cooperation, you can still, there's still plenty of cooperation you can offer. Like there are companies that have reviewed, you know, especially in, in the kinds of cases Bill and I are doing, sometimes there's millions of pages of documents and you come in, there are companies that come in with a binder and say, these are the top 10 documents. We may disagree about what they mean, but here they are. You have saved, we have saved you, the government all the time and man hours and maybe AI hours it takes to review all these documents. And but that's not going to get you the top level cooperation, but it's going to get you something. Um, you guys have mentioned um, Josh Levy now, the, the U.S. attorney has been in that seat for several months now, maybe even longer than that. Um, Josh is obviously extremely well known. Um, he did lots of high profile cases on the defense side, lots of high profile healthcare cases. On the defense side, I'm wondering if you've noticed any trends since he's taken um, the mantle of U.S. Attorney's Office in terms of healthcare fraud enforcement. I mean, Boston's been doing these cases forever, but um, has there been any uptick? Are you are you noticing any 
on any any difference or increase in the key tams that are showing up or people showing up on on Bill's side of the house um, or any increased emphasis on healthcare fraud enforcement since Josh has taken the mantle. Anything you guys have noticed along those lines? The, the biggest thing I've noticed is there has been an uptick in voluntary self-disclosures. Again, it was like at zero <laughs> for a long time. And, and, and there have been people who've been explicit that um, Josh's experience and his focus on this area, meaning focus on trying to bring in voluntary self-disclosures, trying to incentivize companies to do that, in addition to just generally being focused on healthcare, um, I think has had uh, an effect on on that. And, and, you know, the uptick, it's not a huge number, but when we're starting from such a low baseline, um, I think that that has really helped. That, you know, Josh is definitely focused on healthcare. Um, he has that background. The office has always been focused on that. But that tone, you know, from the top is that these are these are important matters, and he's very involved. Bill, anything you've observed? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with what Dave said. I mean, I think he, he, you know, especially coming, you know, given his background and coming out of um, the kind of defense side, elder experience, I mean, he understands the importance of this work, um, and um, and we certainly feel very supported by that. I, I also think. For a lot of the topics that we're talking about here, I sort of think about the discussion of cooperation, for example. I think um, you know, credibility and relationships can be really important. I think when it comes down to, you know, comes down to these discussions and evaluating things like cooperation. And I think uh, you know, Josh brings uh, a real depth of, of experience uh, uh, and range of experience as well that um, you know, I, I would hope and I would think that, you know, as defense attorneys sitting across the table, um, you know, I, 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 you know they, they're going to be heard and that perspective is going to be understood um, and taken into account um, as we make decisions and try to get these, get these decisions right. We've got about um, eight minutes. Um, a, a couple topics I'm hoping that we can um, touch on real quick here. Um, one area that's just exploding in healthcare generally is, is digital health. Uh, maybe I think you mentioned something about digital health um, earlier on. Um, telemedicine, remote patient monitoring, AI. I mean, there have been incredible technological advancements. Um, and we're seeing lots and lots of enforcement activity in the area of digital health as well. Um, I, Abe, are you seeing more um, key tamps coming in along those lines, more more digital health investigations than you used to have? Yeah, we're definitely seeing more of that. I think the, the big one from the, the the list that you gave that I'm especially seeing more of is telemedicine. Um, and, I, and I don't think even our district has had a lot of telemedicine comparatively to some other districts. So I, I think is a guess, but I think we might be more towards the beginning of, of telemedicine cases than we are to the end. You know, if you, if you take, for instance, the patient copay assistance cases that we've done, I think we're towards the end, <laughs> um, but on on telemedicine, I, I my sense is we might be more towards the beginning. Yeah, and so what might be for for anybody really? What might be a a telemedicine fact pattern that results in an in enforcement action? Like I think we've all seen, for instance, the uh, the cold calling of Medicare beneficiaries to try to get them to agree to like a piece of DME or a brace of some sort, and then but there's no real uh, doctor patient interaction. There's been a number of those cases. 
in Boston and and elsewhere. But like, what are some telemedicine fact patterns that would concern you guys? I mean, I think that the one that you just described is is what I'm thinking of, right? DME companies that are e either themselves or through like a third party reaching out to Medicare beneficiaries to get them to, I, I don't know if order is the right word, but order uh, DME that they that they don't, or, or, or using Medicare beneficiaries' names, right, um, without even contacting the beneficiary and, and using platforms to call doctors and the doctors will sign off on orders and prescriptions where they have no re patient relationship whatsoever. So that's that's the one that I'm sort of thinking of. I don't know if Bill has any others in mind. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, um, I, I think DME is, is really kind of a big one, but there's also, um, there's there's testing, you know, uh, genetic testing, lab te I, I, lab testing that happens, and and it's it's you know, Dave, it's it's a there's another fact pattern where you know our healthcare system, I mean, there are gatekeepers, and it's typically a doctor who has to you know who has to sign off on the piece of DME, the the lab order, or or whatever, going get paid. Um, and and the fact pattern, whether it's telemedicine or, or some other context, is um, you know somebody gets gets that provider to just blindly click on a computer screen or, uh, to sign off on things for money um, when there's just no medicine at all happening there. It's uh, you know, but not the bag of cash that Abe referred to before, but it's. Uh, um, it, it's almost concerning. Um, and so I, I think, you know, I think we have talk about trends in, in enforcement. Um, like the rest of the world, I mean, we, we're surrounded by data. And, and uh, the data that we often see and look at first is wh where is all of this money going in our healthcare system? Um, and, and I think as more and more money goes flying out, you know, at a quicker pace because providers need to get paid, patients need their care. Um, there's just more and more opportunities for fraud and abuse. And in these systems, whether it's telemedicine or otherwise, where uh, you have providers in that gatekeeping, gatekeeping role, yeah. um, you know, we're always going to be kind of looking there because, unfortunately, that's, that is the common fact pattern for this fraud and abuse that we see. I do think a lot of us also are keeping an eye out for um, – artificial intelligence related enforcement actions we may be on the, the leading edge of that because there's such an explosion in AI. And one area where it comes up is in clinical decision support models. And so life sciences companies might be developing um, clinical decision support models, and maybe they'll sell them to, um, to hospitals and other providers. And I guess the question would come up is if the, the model would support the pharma company's product over others that might come up. That that fact pattern came up when um, ONC issued a new rule, and that that precise kickback concern was raised um, in the in the Federal Register. So that's one area. Um, I'm wondering if anybody um, has seen any AI related um, enforcement actions or or investigations, or or if there's anything that you could see around the corner related to artificial intelligence. I, I haven't seen any. I don't know uh, if the others have. I mean, one thing I could see and um, is AI 
being used to make determinations about who's eligible and who should receive certain services or not? Um, and what are the inputs as to determining how AI makes that decision? Dave, I can't, I can't, you know, personally, I can't say, I can't kind of think of a specific instance, but I, you know, I, it sounds to me it's, it's a, a kind of a new man, you know, new potential manner and means of, of carrying out, you know, uh, the same sorts of scheme that we're always concerned about. Yeah. Right? And so at the end of the day, if, you know, if the AI or software is being used to advance, um, you know, unnecessary medical treatments or kickbacks. Um, you know, at the end of the day, there's going to be human beings behind that, and uh, you know, we'll sort of follow the investigation to that and figure out what's going on. So, but I, I think clearly, since that's such a focus of industry and there's so much money there, um, I, I would be surprised if we don't see it more and more on our. Andrew, and, and so, Dave, I, I haven't seen it yet, but I think the emphasis is on yet. It's it's hard to imagine with with all the focus, um, both in terms of companies investing in the technology and media coverage, that the relators bar at a minimum, if not DOJ, is going to be taking a look at some of these things in the near future. I was to say one quick thing about like the FCA in this area is I could see you know an argument that AI sort of does its own thing, so there's a lack of knowledge. Um, and and I don't know, maybe that's true. I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't seen that case yet, but I, I, I'm pretty sure my action would be that once you're on notice that AI is producing these results, you're at least liable that, at that point. Well, that makes sense. We know that the government for a long time has used AI in terms of like data mining and that sort of thing to try to identify fraud trends. So it's certainly been used on the fraud detection side as well. Um, well, look, we are we are right at the end. Uh, we're at twelve fifty nine, um, and so I think maybe we'll give folks thirty seconds back. Um, but really appreciate um, everyone participating. Our great panelists, um, and thanks again to the to the BBA for hosting this webinar. Hope folks found it um, useful, and we'll see you soon. The BBA is Boston's largest legal network built on justice, community, education, and inclusion. Take advantage of our exclusive Express membership offer and save 50% off BBA membership through August 31st, 2024. Enjoy the full benefits of BBA membership and take advantage of BBA programs and events, discounts on services, access to the full Learn Online library, and much more. This special offer is only available through March 15, 2024. Use code EXPRESS50 at checkout.